0: If you would, take your Bible. Let's go over to Ruth chapter 2. We want to go back into our study in the book of Ruth. And um, we're finally here. This is our 13th message in the study of the book of Ruth, and it's entitled "A Redemptive Providential Encounter. You've probably heard the statement, the night is darkest just before dawn. You ever heard of that? Interesting statement. It was actually first coined by the English theologian and historian Thomas Fuller in 1650. It means everything looks awful just before it gets better. Everything looks awful just before it gets better. Wow. And that's the way I feel in relationship to the book of Ruth. We've been studying for the last 12 messages what has happened in chapter 1 of Ruth And we can easily describe that as something that is dark, it's desperate, there's bitterness there, there's anger there, there's significant loss there, nothing looks good, nothing looks good. There's a story of a man who was the only survivor of a ship that went down in the storm and he was washed onto a small uninhabited island. And the story is told that he cried out to God to save him every day, day after day, doing everything that he could to stay alive and scan the horizon for passing ships. Months went by. He ma- managed to build a rough hut for shelter. And that's where he stored a few of the precious things that he had salvaged from the sunken ship. And one day, after searching for food, he was stunned with grief to discover his hut going up in flames and smoke. And soon it was all gone. The worst had happened. He was devastated by the loss, angry and bitter at the loss of all of his meager survival gear. That night he slept on the cold beach. Early in the next morning, a ship came to his rescue. And to his amazement, when the maroon man asked the captain what had caused the ship to rescue him, the captain said, well, we saw your smoke signal. (laughs) Just when everything was at its worst. You may have had circumstances like that in your life. I've counseled numerous people who have shared all the difficulties and heartaches and setbacks and losses and griefs that have occurred in life. And sometimes they will sit there and say, I don't think life can get any darker. I'm at my lowest point. Help. I'm at my lowest point. Have you ever been like that? Have you ever been at their at your lowest point in life where you thought it's impossible for anything to get worse? It can't. It can't get worse. What could possibly happen to make things worse? Well, that first chapter of Ruth is like that maroon man kind of reminds you of the movie Castaway, right? Was released in 2000 with Tom Hanks. Kind of reminds you of that movie. Ruth chapter 1 is full of death. It's full of despair. It's full of bitterness. It's full of anger. I mean, when you look at Ruth chapter 1 in verse 20, this is Naomi at her lowest point. She said to them, that is to the women there in Bethlehem, do not call me Naomi, which means. Pleasant or sweet? Call me Mara, bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Why do you even call me Naomi? Why do you call me sweetie anymore? I'm not sweetie. I'm sour now. I'm sour about everything that has occurred in my life. I'm tired of it all. Wow. From Naomi's point of view, the worst has occurred. It's time to just kind of shrivel up and die. But by the time you get to chapter 2, God's rescue plan is at work. Lamentations 3, that David read earlier. For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. In chapter 2, we're introduced to the, for the first time in the book to a man by the name of Boaz. He becomes the great-grandfather of King David, and he becomes a critical link in the lineage of the Messiah. When you read the book of Ruth, you must always bear in mind that this is much more than a simple romantic story between a man and a woman. It's primarily a redemptive story between man and God. It's vital to help you understand that God is always at work keeping his covenantal promises, and sometimes he does this through seemingly the chance encounters of men. They seem to be chance encounters, but in reality, in God's sovereignty, they're not chance encounters at all. They're actually designed by him. So, If you take a walk in a forest and enjoy the beauty of the trees and the waves of grass and the wind and the occasional burst of wildflower colors, it's such a wonderful thing. But if you took an electron microscope and you began to look at the structure of the leaves and the blooms and the insects at work, you'd be astounded because that forest is alive all around you. Everything is growing. Everything's multiplying around you with a complexity that you would never, ever imagine. Things are changing all around you and you would not normally even notice it. And that's the way it is with God's providential encounters. They are the common events of life that you scarcely scarcely take notice of, but behind the scenes, God's providential purposes are at work. He's bringing these events about. They're unfolding before your very eyes, and you don't even notice that God's fingerprints are all over these circumstances. This is the way I believe that God is at work in the early events of Ruth chapter 2 through the normal interpersonal encounters of life. When you read those events themselves... You're not too impressed, but when you inspect them more closely and you observe what is going on, you're astounded. You're amazed about what's happening. Let's look at the first five verses. Follow along as I read. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a kinsman... And of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, "'Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, "'after one in whose sight I may find favor.' "'And she said to her, "'Go, my daughter.' So she departed, and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to a portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the serpent, was in charge of the reapers. Whose young woman is this? Now, I want to answer three important questions in this message to help you better understand the work of God's redemptive providence here in this second chapter of Ruth. They're very simple questions. The first one is, who is Boaz? Who is Boaz? We want to take a very careful look at him. We're going to pick up that electron microscope and take a look carefully at who is Boaz. Second thing is, what is a kinsman redeemer? Foreign concept to our culture, but it's a question that needs to be answered, and it needs to be answered thoroughly from Scripture. What is a kinsman redeemer? And thirdly, why is this providential encounter so important, all right? Why is this providential encounter between Boaz and Ruth so critical here? Not just because of a relationship between a man and a woman, not just because of that. When we sink to that particular level, we don't really understand what's going on in the book of Ruth. That's a part of it, and it's a beautiful part of it, and we don't deny that, but there's far more going on here than that. So the three things, who is Boaz? Boaz. What is a kingsman redeemer, and why is this providential encounter so important? Why? So let's look at the first question. Who is Boaz? And it's very interesting. Samuel, we said, is no doubt the author of the book of Ruth. Samuel is writing, and he purposely puts this as the lead verse of chapter 2 before he launches into the story of what is really going on the continuing story of Ruth and Naomi's relationship, all of a sudden he inserts this little verse as kind of something that sets the setting of everything that is supposed to follow throughout the rest of the book. And chapter two and verse one sets that setting. And that setting is centered around Boaz. And we learn four important things in verse one. Four important things in verse 1. The first thing that we learn about Boaz is that he is a covenant brother of Naomi. That's the first thing we learn about Boaz. He's a covenant brother of Naomi. Now, I have purposely worded it like that in order to carry the full significance of all the Hebrew terminology that's going on in the text here. But the word used here in the Hebrew where you see, where he says, a kinsman. You see that word, kinsman? The word in Hebrew means a person you know and you regard with affection and trust. That's the idea behind that word. In fact, it is a very colorful word within this particular context. And it says that Boaz was a kinsman of her husband, Elimelech, So Boaz was related to Naomi by marriage or by covenant. And hence, he was a covenant brother with her, covenant brother with her. And that really has a twofold significance. Not only was he a covenant brother by the covenant of marriage, but he was also a covenant brother in the broadest and most extended sense under the old Mosaic covenant. So they both shared that, and we're going to see this especially when we take a look at the tribes that they come from, and especially Boaz. But this becomes more important because of the role that he is called on to play in helping Naomi and Ruth. Samuel, again, is the author of Ruth, and he's setting up the legal qualifications for Boaz' role according to the Mosaic law. Hence the Mosaic covenant. In other words, verse one is setting up the legal requirements for Boaz to be proactive in this situation. And there has to be very specific legal requirements. So he was a covenant brother of Naomi. We know that first of all. There's a second thing we learn about this. The second thing is he was a man of great wealth. Again, the Hebrew language helps us here. It says that Boaz was a man of great wealth, according to the New American Standard translation. But the actual Hebrew term does not refer exclusively to money. It's a reference to all of his possessions. Boaz had acquired a lot of things. He was a man of a lot of resources. In fact, the Hebrew emphasizes that by saying great, great, Possessions is the idea. He had great resources. And since he was a man of great resources, he had the ability to do things that other men could not do. So that's another critical aspect of who Boaz is. He's a covenant brother of Naomi. He is a man of great resources. There's a third thing we learned in verse 1. And it's not immediately apparent, but it's very definitely implied. He was a part of the tribe of Judah. He was part of the tribe of Judah. It adds here in verse 1 that Boaz was of the family of Elimelech. So that reinforces what we stated earlier by directly tying him to Elimelech's immediate family, and the Hebrew term for family here means a clan of people, um, usually referring to an immediate nuclear family or a very close relative. So Boaz was a very closely related person to Elimelech by blood. It also meant that Boaz was a significant part of the tribe of Judah. Now, this it can be safely surmised that Elimelech was from the tribe of Judah since his hometown was Bethlehem within the land given to, by God to the tribe of Judah. And also in the first two verses of chapter 1, the fact that Elimelech and his family lived in Judah is emphasized twice, and that's very, very deliberate. The fact that they lived in Judah is emphasized twice. Now, why is that so significant? Well, you understand that the tribe of Judah was the most powerful of all the 12 tribes of Israel. Possibly its earliest history is represented in the story of Judah, which was He was the fourth son of Jacob in Genesis chapter 29. And then again in chapter 38 of Genesis. And in fact, Genesis 49 verses nine and 10 refers to young Judah as a lion. Now he could have been a young man of great strength or he could have been ferocious in the way he dealt with things and circumstances and people, whatever that means, Judah was referred to as a lion, and already later on in the reigns of David now, which becomes the great-grandson of Boaz, and his son Solomon, it was the predominant tribe. Judah was the predominant tribe. After Solomon's death, Judah with Benjamin formed a separate kingdom known as the kingdom of Judah, which outlasted all the northern tribes and in generally maintained a much pure religious faith in relationship to Yahweh. So Judah was a more faithful tribe in Israel than all the other 11. That can be established over and over again throughout Old Testament history. So no wonder that in the apostle john's final apocalypse remember here in join airs we spent over 5 years going through the book of revelation well in the apostle john's final apocalypse he describes the scene in heaven and one of the elders around the throne of god admonishes him to stop weeping and the elder says to john and one of the elders said to me stop weeping behold the lion that is from the tribe of judah the root of david has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals, which ties the tribe, the lineage of David all together, and all of this is going to happen because of the events of Ruth chapter 2. So now here is the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, referred to as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, root of David, he is the one that's qualified to overcome. So Boaz, like Elimelech, came from one of the elite tribes of Israel, later known for their faithfulness to the Lord. There's a fourth thing that I want you to observe about this first verse. The fourth thing is this, he was a man known for his strength of character. All right. He was a man who was known for his strength of character. The name Boaz means quickness or strength. It's an unusual name. But it's interesting that later on in Israel's history, it was the name Boaz that became synonymous with strength, and stature. How do we know that? Because later on, his great, great grandson builds the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's Temple. And the pillar, two pillars were on the front of the temple. And the pillar to the left, as you approached the temple, was named Boaz. Boaz. Whoa. Part of the spiritual qualities of Boaz's character that made him so famous and was well-known generations after he passed away was beloved by his Jewish descendants. Yahweh had raised him up at exactly the right time, put him right in the exact position where he needed to be, in order to be the influence that he needed to be. He was known for a strength of character. And that's something that carried on four or five generations after him. It's one thing for somebody to be well-known in our day and age. Very few people are known one or two generations later. He was known several generations later and one of the most predominant structures in all of Israel, which was the Solomonic Temple. Then one of the big pillars was named after him. Who is Boaz? Wow. He was a covenant brother of Naomi. He was a man of great wealth. He was a part of the tribe of Judah. He was a man known for his strength of character, Which brings us to our second question. What is a kinsman redeemer? Now, so far in the book of Ruth, the terminology for kinsman redeemer hasn't showed up. It's not in Ruth chapter 2. In fact, it doesn't show up until Ruth chapter 4 and verse 8. So, spoiler alert, okay? As we move through the book of Ruth, we're going to do a spoiler alert here, but we need to talk about it now in order for you to fully understand why the events unfold the way that they do. So we're going to jump over to chapter 4 and verse 8, just for a moment. And you see in verse 8, it says, So the closest relative said to Boaz, closest relative, this is the term, the Hebrew term, goel, which means kinsman redeemer, says, Buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. What does that mean? Well, apparently there was somebody that was a closer relative who could possibly have been the kinsman redeemer, but he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to take up the responsibility, and I'm going to explain to you why that happened. And it was a custom in those days to show that he is relinquishing his responsibility and turning it over to Boaz. He would take off his shoe and give it to him. It was symbolic in those days, his sandal. We need to do that when we sign papers today. All right, we need to do this. When we make agreements, we need to take off one shoe and give it to the person we're making an agreement between, which basically says to everybody watching, I'm not going to walk away from this, all right? If I do, it's going to hurt. I'm not going to walk away from this. I'm going to take off the sandal, and I'm going to give it to you and show you, all right, I'm making an agreement. I'm going handle to this, handle this, hand over this responsibility to you, Boaz. So Boaz now, boom, in chapter 4, receives the sandal. Now, the question is, does Boaz really want to go forward with this and step in and be the real kinsman redeemer? I know you've read the story, and I know you know the end of the story and all of this, but at this particular point, if you're reading the story for the first time and coming to this point and you don't know the end of the story, you're wondering if you're a Jewish person, oh, I wonder what Boaz is going to do. He's got a big choice here to make. So what is a kinsman redeemer? Well, let's answer This question, looking at two things, the role of the kinsman redeemer and the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer, all right? The role of the kinsman redeemer and the responsibilities. Listen to how one scholar of ancient Israel's customs and practices and what he says about the kinsman redeemer, quoting him, the relative who restores or preserves the full community of rights of a disadvantaged family member's. That's a kinsman redeemer. Later on, he says, the concept arises from God's covenant relationship with Israel and points to the redemption of humanity in Jesus Christ. Now, he's giving us a broader significance to it, but a kinsman redeemer in Old Testament Israel was God's way of using family members to look out for the welfare of family members who had experienced significant loss. The role of close relatives to reach out for and care and bring into their immediate family those who were needy and helpless became a very important safety net in the structure of Israel and their interpersonal relationships. Now, when we're talking about the role of the kinsman redeemer, there are three qualifications that define the role of a man to be a kinsman redeemer. Three critical qualifications. What are they? Number one, the kinsman redeemer had to be a blood relative of the person that he was to redeem. All right, that was established by the Old Testament covenant. By, according to the Old Testament law, a person who was not a blood relative could not become a kinsman redeemer. Boaz could have been possibly a distant brother to Elimelech. But whatever his relationship, everyone recognized him as being related to Elimelech. And we know they were both a part of the tribe of Judah. So there is no doubt this is the reason why, back in chapter 2 and verse 1, that Samuel says what he does to link Boaz together as a part of Naomi's family. The second qualification has to do with the fact that Kingsman Redeemer had to have resources to purchase a lost or forfeited inheritance. That he had to have the resources to be able to do it. Well, we already saw that with Boaz, right? Boaz was an incredibly heavily resourced guy with considerable finances, considerable landownings, So there was no doubt about his ability to be able to help Naomi and Ruth. So he fits that qualification perfectly. The third thing, and this is really key here, and this is going to play out in terms of significance as we roll on in the book of Ruth. The third thing, does that kinsman redeemer, does he have the resolve to do it? Does he have the resolve to do it? Those three qualifications were key for a kinsman-redeemer. Blood relative, resources, in order to be able to make the purchase to redeem them and the resolve to be able to redeem them. Will Boaz ha, have the resolve and the commitment to follow through and help as a kinsman should? And we're going to explore more of that as we move on in the book of Ruth, but it's safe to say now he does. In doing so, He takes a significant risk because there are so many things that could go wrong here. Which brings us to the second part of this, and that is the responsibilities. What are the responsibilities? And there were five of them. Five critical responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. What was the kinsman redeemer responsible for if he decides to help out this family member that has become destitute or hard up? Five responsibilities. Number one, he had the responsibility to redeem back their land. He had the responsibility to redeem back their land. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 25 through 28 says, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or, in the case of a man who has no kinsman, but so recovers his means so as to find significance for the redemption, then he shall calculate the year since its sale and refund the balance to the man uh, to whom he sold it and so return his property. But if he has not found uh, sufficient means to get it back himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee, but at the jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his property. It was very important to God that the original property stay in the hands of the family members. So the land in Israel, we talked about this earlier, what the, the Hebrew language called the aritz, the, the land was vitally important to the Jew. Being connected to the land was vitally important to the Jew because it was important to God. We can see the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 9, where it comes back and talks about that same thing. So the land was very important to the ancient Jew. God's original covenant with Abraham included the promised land. Every Israelite believed the land was a sacred promise given to them, but sometimes they would lose their land to other people due to debt, sometimes death, sometimes destruction. This is a way for them to be restored to the land, So the kinsman redeemer could actually go back in and buy back the land for them. That's the first thing. The second responsibility he had is to redeem the enslaved. To redeem the enslaved. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 47 through 50. If I had more time, I'd take time and read that, but we don't. But the idea is that sometimes... It Israelites would get in such desperate situations, they would sell themselves to other Israelites as slaves because they had no other options in order just to stay stay alive. Or they would become a slave in order to work off their debt. And sometimes this took years, decades to do the kinsman redeemer had an obligation to free whatever relative was from their enslavement. That was the second thing. The third thing the kinsman redeemer was responsible for. Now, the first two, I think we understand within our culture, but this third thing is a little bit more difficult. He had the responsibility to provide an heir. He had a responsibility to provide an heir. We can see this in Genesis chapter 38 with Onan and the fact that he refused to provide an heir, what makes that particular passage so difficult is not the fact that um, um, he withdrew from his intimate relationship with the woman that he was supposed to redeem. That's not the issue that was the big thing, even though it's discussed there and wasted his seed on the ground in order to not give offspring to his brother. The issue is that when he became a kinsman redeemer, he had promised that he would follow through with it, and he broke the promise. That's the issue. That became the problem. We can see this described in much more detail in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. Again, if we had more time, we would go through that. And you remember also when Jesus was confronted by the Sadducees about the hypothetical situation of seven brothers who married the same woman in order to fulfill the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer, and each one of the brothers had died, after each succeeding brother died without providing an heir for the family, then remember, they ask him, then whose wife will she be in the resurrection? That all had to do with the kinsman redeemer thing. Well... Well, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. (laughs) Right? They didn't believe in their resurrection. And by the way, it's also sad to know that Boaz was ruthless for a while. But I know, that's a groaner, isn't it? (laughs) All right, I'll stop. I'll stop right there, okay? So the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that they could use the kinsman-redeemer obligations to demonstrate how impossible a future resurrection was. But Jesus answered them in Matthew 22, verses 29 through 33, and he says to them, "'You're mistaken, uh, not understanding the Scripture nor the power of God.'" For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then it says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So remember, God had promised Abraham to have descendants that would rival the number of stars in the sky. So, to the Israelites, having an heir to pass on the family was vitally important. The kinsman redeemer had an obligation to marry uh, the woman who was the widow, produce children with her, um, so that his relative could, uh, heritage could be passed on. That was his responsibility. Now, he had to have the resolve to do it, right? He had the resolve to do it. The other close relative, as we saw in chapter 4, didn't want to do that. Didn't want to do it. The fourth responsibility was to avenge death. Fourth responsibility was to avenge death. Now, you can see a lot about this in Numbers chapter 35, verses 16 through 21. So God was concerned about injustice, and the kinsman redeemer had the obligation to avenge the death of one of his relatives if it was appropriate, only then at that particular point would justice occur for those Israelite families. So he had a responsibility to avenge death. Then number five, he had the responsibility to be a trustee. He had the responsibility to be a trustee. Numbers chapter five, verses five through eight where kinsman redeemer had the responsibility to oversee any funds that came into the family with the settlement of some kind of restitution from the past, he was to collect the money and to use it to further the benefit of the family in the name of the dead relative. So this was provided so that the Israeli family would survive and possibly even prosper even after the death of their beloved loved one. So what are the responsibilities of kinsman redeemer? He had to redeem the land, he had to redeem them from slavery, he had to provide an heir, he had to avenge death, and he had to be a trustee. And every aspect of responsibility of the Kingsman Redeemer was part of God's design in order to provide for Israeli families who had lost their husband, father, patriarch to death. This involved redeeming the family land, buying back a family member from slavery, providing a family progeny for a childless widow, justice in the matter of a family member's death, and financial trustee for money that would come to the family in the future. So the role and responsibility of the kinsman redeemer was enormous and weighty. Not everyone was willing to take that on. Not everyone was willing to take that on. Well, let's deal with the last question, the third one. Why is this providential encounter so important? This brings us into verses 2 through 5. Look at verses 2 through 5. First, we want to talk just quickly about the setting of this, and then we're going to talk about the significance. There are really in the setting of this, there are four meaningful observations we can take note of in verses 2 through 5. Verse 2, I want you to note this, that the Mosaic law provided the legal right for the needy, that is especially widows, orphans, strangers, to glean grain from the first cuttings of the field after harvest. This is what Ruth wants to do. In other words, what's so amazing about this is, listen, Ruth is a Moabitess. She wasn't brought up under the Mosaic law. She was brought up under pagan learning. And yet, somehow, she had educated herself in the details of the law. And the details of the law said she could participate in gleanings. She knew that. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 22 When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover you shall not reap to the very corners of your field nor gather gleanings of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord. So Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 19 through 21 says the same thing. So she understood this. That's the reason why she decided that she wanted to ask Naomi if she could go out and glean from the fields. Number two, the providence of God is seen in Ruth's, this is in verse three now, the providence of God is seen in Ruth's seemingly chance encounter with Boaz. And this is where the book of Ruth turns from a frowning providence to a smiling providence. (laughs) This is the turning point, from a frowning providence to a smiling providence. Merciful providence occurs because God cares about his people. It means that God is intimately involved in the details of their life. The doctrine of God's providence is anti-deistic. Deists believe that God created the world and then left it to run on its own, like winding up a clock and leaving it alone to run. But the Bible teaches that our God is critically involved in every detail of our lives. He's not detached from this world. Ruth's choice to glean Boaz's field was not random. It was her choice, but it was also God's choice. It was God's direction in light of his eternal purposes. That sets in motion a whole series of events throughout the rest of the book of Ruth. That's breathtaking and glorious, especially when you consider the first chapter of this book was so negative. The third thing is the kindness of Boaz. This is verse four. The kindness of Boaz is evidence in the way that he treats his servants, laboring in the field. Notice the way that Boaz, in verse 4, greets his servants working in the field. And then notice the way that they greet him. There is a mutual respect and a kindness in the greeting from both parties. Literally, Boaz says to his servants, Yahweh be with you. And they reply, Yahweh bless you. Enemies don't give a greeting like that. This is what the psalmist says of his enemies, Psalm 129 and verse 8, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. That's not what his enemies say. In Judges chapter 6 and verse 12, this greeting that Boaz gives to the workers is very similar to the way the angel of the Lord greets Gideon. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. So Boaz gives his workers, his servants, his slaves, the most precious and warm wishes he could give them. He shows his compassionate concern for them and their welfare. Then they turn around and they bless him. How great it is to work for a boss that cares for and respects you, right? Show me a worker that's treated like this, and I'll show you a very happy worker. Verse 4 is not just a record of events that occurred that day. It is purposely placed there by Samuel and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to point out the righteous character of Boaz as a leader. He was a gracious, humble man who cared for his laborers. He was a man of honor, possessing a deep respect for other people, God, in his kind providence, led Ruth to the right field, to the right man, who had the right lineage in order for everything to turn out the right way. The fourth thing, here in verse 5, the fact that Boaz immediately takes notice of Ruth as a young woman shows that he was familiar with all of his, his servants and slaves. Before Boaz met the young Moabite woman, some say, that um, he didn't really know his workers. He didn't know them. It wasn't very common in those, day, in those ancient times when you had slaves to really know all the slaves. Somebody else took care of that. But in this particular case, Boaz knew them all. He went out and visited them in the field. Boaz knew the people who worked for him, and this young woman was not one of them. Does he notice her because she's pretty? Sometimes you get some commentaries that, Say something like that. Nothing's said about that. Does he notice her because she's wearing clothing that was not common among the workers? Doesn't say that. Does he notice her because she is a Moabitess? Doesn't say that. But it does say he notices her because she's young. So when Boaz questions his workers about her He highlights the fact that she's young, whether she is too young to be out there in the field with the rest of the harvesters could be an implication, or could very well be that her energy and her hard work showed a youthful zeal, and Ruth may really have possessed a countenance that was very youthful, whatever the case. Boaz noticed she was a young woman, Now, these four observations of verses 2 through 5 help you to understand the, the skillful hand of redemptive providence weaving the lives of Naomi, Ruth, Boaz together for a greater purpose. Our Lord still works in our lives today with the same skillful and compassionate hand. You understand that, right? What about the significance of this? Well, like Boaz, one significance is that your Redeemer needed to be your blood relative in order to redeem you from sin. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Secondly, your Redeemer needed to possess the resources in order to purchase your redemption. Oh yes, Hebrews 9, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers sprinkling those who had been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He has all the resources to be able to do it. And thirdly, I think the significance of this is that your Redeemer needed to have the resolve in order to follow through. Hebrews 10 verses 8 and 9 says that, says, sacrifices... And offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he says, behold, I have come to do your will. Speaking of Christ the Messiah, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. So let's review real quickly. Who is Boaz? Three questions. Who is Boaz? Boaz was a blood relative of Limelech who had been blessed with many possessions, probably his brother and part of the immediate family of Eliminak, related to Naomi by marriage, and he was known for his strength of character. What is a kinsman redeemer? He had to be a blood relative with financial means and a willingness to take on a heavy responsibility of being a kinsman redeemer. He was responsible to restore the relative's land, freedom, heritage, justice, financial future, A kinsman redeemer who took on that role would almost have to give up everything else in life in order to fully comply with these expectations. His life was now completely given over to his relative, and all his self-interests were completely disregarded or set aside. Why is this providential encounter so important? Because you can see God's redemptive purposes begin to unfold through the events that brought Boaz and Ruth together. All of those particular events foreshadowed the coming of the ultimate kinsman redeemer and descendant of Boaz and Ruth, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Elena Boner, wife of Soviet dissident, Andrei Zakharov, says that as he wrote his memoirs, she typed, edited, and nursed the work, doing everything that she could in order to make it survive seizure by the Soviet-controlled government. Zakharov worked on his memoirs and Gordy, rewriting sections because they kept vanishing. Then one day, he met Elena at a train station, and with trembling lips, he told her they stole it. She says he looked like a man who had just learned of the death of a close friend. But then she said, after days, Sakharov returned to his work. And according to his wife, each time he rewrote his memoirs, there was something new, something better. That's the way our Lord works in our lives. As we've seen in the lives of Naomi and Ruth, the end of chapter one is dark, it's hopeless. But our Lord now had something new, something better for them. That's a perfect description of what happens when your life, in your life, when you come to Christ and He begins to rewrite the story of your life from the past. The rewrite is so much better. Now we'll begin to see how Ruth and Naomi's life is going to change into something beyond imagination. And that's always the nature of our Lord's providential plan. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for your abundant care for us, and it extends into the details of everything that providentially occurs in our life. There's nothing that occurs that is just random. There's nothing that occurs as a result of chance or happenstance. These things occur because you have designed them. You have brought them in. And even though there is a time where there may be a frowning providence, we know that at some particular point in the future, you then will turn around and bring something far greater that's far better than we could ever imagine. I pray, Father, that you'll encourage us with those thoughts as we go about living in this sin-cursed world. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.